is May the 11th, 2006, at 9.30 in the evening in Wembley, North London. 29-year-old Nisha Patel Nazri is standing in her salon, Precisions, cutting her brother's hair. It's a successful business that she started when she was 18. Now she has over 2,000 regular customers. But she also has another job. Nisha is a volunteer special constable for the Metropolitan Police Force. It's only a few hours a week and unpaid, but she likes to give back to the community. Nisha and her brother Kaitan have lived here in Wembley nearly their whole lives and they're well known in the area. Their parents moved to the UK from India before they were born and left the house to Nisha and Kaitan when they passed away. Kaitan still lives here above the salon, but Nisha has recently moved to a new house nearby with her Lebanese husband of three years, Fadi. He also runs his own business, hiring out limousines. Even though they are adults now, Kaitan still calls her his little Nisha, maybe because she's only five foot tall. She finishes Kaitan's hair and checks her own reflection in the mirror. She likes to do her own colouring, light brown with a bit of pink at the moment, a mid-length stylish bob. Soon, Fadi arrives to pick Nisha up. She gives him a quick trim before they get ready to go home. He's a handsome man with black hair and dark eyes. They met through mutual friends and were engaged five months later. Fadi's in a good mood and says he's going to make dinner for her tonight. She jokes to Kaitan that he's turning into a housewife. But the truth is, he's trying to make up for last night. Nisha and Fadi went out with friends to celebrate their third wedding anniversary. It wasn't exactly an intimate romantic evening, and Fadi had to leave early as he had to deal with some business. Nisha's surprised and pleased. At least he's making an effort. Nisha and Fadi go home to Sudbury Avenue, just two streets away. After they've eaten, Fadi tells her he's going to play snooker with a friend. Nisha's disappointed. She'd cancelled other plans in order to spend time with him, at his request. But then Fadi often goes out on his own, which is usually okay. But recently, Nisha has become anxious of being left alone. Five days ago, she was also home by herself when there was a knock at the door late at night. Three men had stood on her porch and tried to trick her into opening the front door. She refused and they soon left. But she was left wondering, were they going to rob her or worse? At 11.30, she hears the front door shut. Nisha is alone again. She decides to go to bed. But just 20 minutes later, around 10 to midnight, she hears a noise downstairs that sets her heart racing. Maybe Fadi changed his mind and came home. But her fear rises. What if the prowlers have come back? She throws on her dressing gown, takes the torch from a drawer and goes into the hallway. Minutes later, Nisha is found outside her home, collapsed in the driveway. Hearing her screams, a neighbor had dashed into the road to investigate. He's following me, she cries. The neighbor is confronted with a terrible sight to see. Nisha lying in the dark, torch in hand, her pajama bottom soaked in blood. Somebody stabbed me. Please call the police. The neighbor quickly dials 999, his hand shaking. More neighbors are coming out now. They can't believe what they're seeing. Some run over to see if they can help. 
Others stand huddled in shock. Things like this just don't happen around here. Someone calls Fatty, and someone else rings her brother, Katan. Minutes later, Katan appears, running towards his sister. He kneels down on the path next to her and holds her hand. He's never seen so much blood. Nisha is losing consciousness. Soon, there are blue lights flashing against the square bay window and the white garage door. By the time Fadi arrives, the paramedics are working hard just to keep Nisha alive. A police officer holds him back. They're doing their best, but it's not looking good. A short time later, Fadi and Katan are standing in the family waiting room of Northwich Park Hospital in Middlesex. Nisha is in surgery. The two men are in a daze, or a waking nightmare more like. Their stunned silence is only broken when a doctor comes in to update them. She's lost a lot of blood. We're trying our best before leaving again. Katan is the first to speak. She's my little sister. I should have looked after her. Fatty says nothing. He's overwhelmed. It's only a few minutes later when the doctor returns and solemnly shakes his head. He tells them that Nisha had suffered a five-inch deep incision in her upper groin. The blade punctured the femoral artery, resulting in a massive loss of blood. Nisha bled to death. The words don't sink in. The two men are in shock. Nisha dead. Katan puts his arm around Fatty and says, Don't worry, I'll look after you now. It's a shocking, senseless crime. The murder of the well-known, well-liked hairdresser and special constable. Was it a robbery gone wrong? Or just a random act? It's difficult to imagine who would have wanted to kill Nisha. But when Scotland Yard begin their investigation, they will expose a shocking, twisted tale of lust, deceit, and greed. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A grisly murder of one of their own special constables sends the Metropolitan Police into overdrive. Scotland Yard CID wastes no time in sending on-call senior investigating officer, Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scola, to investigate. Tall, with piercing blue eyes, a frosting of white hair, and a gap between his front teeth, Scola's a distinctive-looking man. Arriving at the house, he takes control and sets everyone to work. The scene is secured, and a forensic search begins, starting from where Nisha collapsed. Senior crime officers go into the house, looking for any clues as to who has committed this terrible crime. They take photographs and make a list of their findings as they go. DCI Scholar's initial instinct is that Nisha must have come out of the house and confronted someone on the path. That could be why she was holding a torch. Was she investigating a disturbance? There's no signs of a forced entry. There's a stash of money in the living room, apparently the salon's takings for the day. He notes it has not been touched. If it was a robbery gone wrong, they certainly fled empty-handed unless the offenders were breaking in to steal car keys. Fatty has a bunch for his limo business and is known to park expensive vehicles at the house. Naturally, Fatty tells police about the men who had tried to break in earlier that week. He said the incident had frightened Nisha. Might these men have come back? Fatty also mentions that a set of house keys have gone missing. It could be a coincidence, but then again it might not. Officers take statements from neighbors. One man says he saw a thick-set, hooded man fleeing the scene, possibly African-Caribbean. Two other witnesses say that they saw a similar man before the murder. He had walked around the block twice. Detective Scola decides that finding this man is a priority. When searching the kitchen, officers see a glass knife rack. A chef's knife, 12 inches long with a steel blade and shaft, is missing. Police immediately see it as a potential murder weapon. But where is it now? The knife stand is surrounded by champagne glasses, herb and spice jars, and a pot with recently washed utensils in it. Nothing around it is disturbed, indicating that there was no struggle in the kitchen. Scholar speculates that Nisha might have taken the knife from the block herself as protection against an intruder who then grabbed it and used it against her but it's speculation. If they could only find the knife, they might have a clue as to who has carried out this vicious attack. With forensics analyzing their findings, Detective Scholar now turns his attention to possible suspects, but there's no immediately obvious candidates. Inquiries show Nisha to be happy, well-liked and hardworking with no known enemies. Her friends and family tell police that she enjoyed swimming and loved children. In fact, she's been asked to be a godmother no less than four times. People say that Nisha and Fadi were the ideal couple, not long married, with a new home and everything to look forward to. A 
close friend tells police that Nisha became a special constable because she wanted kids to be able to play on the street without their parents worrying about their safety. With no murder weapon and no obvious motive, police are baffled. They decide Fatty should do a television appeal. Two days later, Nisha's bereaved husband appears on Crime Watch. It's upsetting to watch a young, grieving man asking for help to solve his wife's murder. On screen, he looks tired and hollowed out. His black hair is disheveled and he has a few days' worth of stubble. He locks the interviewer with his dark eyes in an empty, mournful stare. He tells her that Nisha's death hasn't really sunk in. His mouth seems dry as he speaks. He says, Any minute now, she's going to walk through the door, and any minute now, she's going to call me. His top lip is slightly curled, as if he can't believe the words he says next. She didn't deserve to die like that at all, and whoever's responsible, come down and put yourself forward. When asked what he misses most about her, Fatty replies, Absolutely everything, you know. Absolutely everything. The public are shocked and saddened by the senseless crime, but no new information comes to light. Fadi, Kaitan, and the police are disappointed. It looks as though this is going to be a difficult case to crack. With no reliable tips coming through, Detective Scola turns the focus of the investigation back to the knife missing from Nisha's kitchen. Forensics have already matched the dimensions of the fatal injury to that of the blade. Based on experience, Scola has a hunch that the killer likely dumped the murder weapon instead of taking it with him, especially if it was unplanned. He orders a meticulous search using the concentric circle method. Fanning out from the immediate vicinity of the crime, police search waste bins, drains, gardens, embankments, and even a churchyard. The hunt goes on for days. In June, a month after Nisha's murder, officers are reaching the end of their search parameters and are about to give up. They're back in Harrodine Road, just two streets away from Nisha's home, doing a final sweep, when one of the men lifts a grill cover from a gutter. There's a flash of silver. The drain below is silted up almost to street level, but there, protruding from the filth, Glinting in the sun is the steel handle of a knife. It looks like they've found a murder weapon. Detective Scola tells Fadi and Kaitan about the discovery, but warns them not to tell anyone, as it could jeopardize the investigation. It's a horrible thought, but he can't rule out the possibility that the perpetrator was someone known to Nisha. They all anxiously await the findings of the forensic analysis. Fadi constantly rings the family liaison officer, only to be told there is no news. But when results come back from the lab, they're all disappointed. The sharp, heavy knife has sat in the mud for weeks. Any DNA has been badly degraded by the bacteria. The only biological material that can be identified is that of niches. The police now have the murder weapon, but there's nothing to link it to the killer. Frustrated, Detective Scola now turns his attention to the drain itself. Luckily, there is a CCTV camera nearby. He's facing in the wrong direction, 
but on examining the footage from the night, they make another discovery. The images capture a parked car. Just minutes after the attack on Nisha, another vehicle arrives, stopping just out of camera shot, right next to where the drain should be. It waits there for seven or eight seconds, during which time the occupant could have dropped the knife in the drain. As it drives off, the CCTV camera catches the side and rear of the vehicle. Unfortunately, it's impossible to read the registration, but Scola calls in a vehicle expert who identifies it as a silver Audi A4. Problem is, there are over 18,000 Audis in the southeast of England alone. However, on closer inspection, the car does have two defining features. The light over the number plate is faulty, and even more unusual is the distinctive roof-mounted aerial that doesn't come as standard. Bingo. Detective Scola now has something to go on. It won't be easy, but he believes if they can find this car, they'll find the killer. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. It's the 1st of June, 2006. Three police motorcycles lead Nisha's hearse through the streets of North London to Golders Green Crematorium. Wreaths of white and pink flowers read Sister and Godmum. A guard of honor made up of a hundred Metropolitan Police officers meet her coffin as the funeral convoy arrives at the crematorium. Fadi and Kaitan both give readings at the service, as do two of the special constables who worked with Nisha. Family and friends gather to mourn her death, still reeling in shock and still not knowing who is responsible. There are whispered discussions of who could have done such a thing, though most assume it was a random act. Some can't help but wonder if it could be someone they know. Someone, perhaps, sitting on one of the benches nearby. Back in Scotland Yard, Detective Scola's investigation is also looking closer to home. As a matter of protocol, he runs background checks on Nisha's friends and family, including her husband, Faddy. Police begin to build up a picture of Fadi's activities and acquaintances. What they find is quite revealing. Regarding his occupation, Fadi calls himself a businessman. Among other enterprises, he used to have a car valeting service. Now he rents out luxury vehicles, including limousines. Under questioning, Fadi reveals a highly relevant piece of information, one that, for some reason, he had not yet divulged. It seems someone had made a threat against Nisha's life. 
Two months before the murder, Faddy had sold one of his many limos to a woman in Scotland. But there had been a disagreement over the deal. It seems Faddy went up there himself, booked the vehicle in a false name, and took it back without the new owner's knowledge. The owner was furious. She rang Faddy, making angry and violent threats. Faddy saved the message and now plays it to the police. You made the biggest mistake of your fucking life because your throat will be slit tonight. So get your fucking wife out of your house now. If you value your life and your wife's life and your health, you'll return my fucking car now or you're fucking dead and your wife's gonna be dead and all. Perhaps Faddy didn't take it seriously at the time, but given the circumstances, it seems shocking he hasn't mentioned it before now. When pressed on it, Faddy dismisses the incident, explaining that he's resolved the dispute himself. But it's a lead Scola can't ignore. He contacts the woman in Scotland. Sure enough, she confirms the disagreement is now settled. He's also satisfied the woman didn't intend to make good on her threats. She also has a cast-iron alibi. He rules her out. But Detective Scola's suspicions are now aroused. Is Faddy hiding something? His own dishonesty? A dodgy car deal? Or is there more? Scola decides to dig a little deeper into Fadi Nasri's dubious business background. He discovers that when Fadi met Nisha, he was running an escort agency called Seventh Heaven. Unsurprisingly, Nisha disapproved of him having sex workers use his one-bedroom flat for their business. She begged him to stop and gave him £15,000 to start up his limousine venture, which she kept registered in her name. Detectives now begin to dissect the couple's financial situation. From outward appearances, it looks as though Faddy is a successful entrepreneur. He has a luxury Lexus car, a Hublot watch worth £10,000, expensive clothes. He claims his limo business earns him £150,000 a year. But when police examine his records, they discover his business is failing. It also turns out that Nisha was the main breadwinner who kept them financially afloat. She also paid the £52,000 deposit for their new home. The couple had massive debts, over £100,000 which they were struggling to clear. But Fadi just kept on spending. Detectives also found out that three months before her death, the couple took out insurance policies on each other's lives worth £350,000. It's hard not to be suspicious when there are such large sums of money involved. Detective Scola follows his instincts and continues to excavate. With Nisha having left everything to Fadi in her will, he stands to inherit over half a million pounds. He's now in a position to be able to pay off his £400,000 mortgage as well as his debts. Suspicions are aroused further when detectives find out that Faddy has also just made a claim on Nisha's half of her parents' house in Wembley, where her business is located. Faddy thinks he's entitled to inherit the hairdressing salon. He's been instructed by his solicitor to extract the money from Nisha's brother, Katan, a move which could leave Katan homeless if he can't afford to pay. All of this rings alarm bells for Detective Scola. It's all circumstantial, but it's a plausible motive. 
But when one of Nisha's best friends reveals that all was not well in Fadi and Nisha's marriage, Scola's suspicions about the grieving husband are increased further. Although the couple appeared to be the picture of marital bliss, Nisha and Fadi's relationship was secretly on the rocks. Nisha confided to the friend that she was tired of being left alone at home at night. The debt and Fadi's unpredictable behavior were weighing on her. They'd been rowing. Nisha felt he was lazy, whereas she was up early and back late from work every single day. In January 2006, just a few months before her death, Nisha told a friend that she wanted to have a baby and had stopped using contraception, but Fadi was refusing to sleep with her. She was even considering divorce. It all makes for pretty sad reading, but it's still far from explaining a murder, just an unhappy marriage and financial problems. But it's enough to warrant further investigation. In July, when police examined Fadi's phone, they realized just how much trouble the marriage was in and how deep his deception ran. Police had initially taken Fadi's mobile to have a look at his business contacts, but instead they make an unexpected discovery. They find photographs of Fadi and a young white woman with blonde hair. One image in particular gets their attention, a woman's thigh wrapped in bed linen in what is clearly a hotel bedroom. Needless to say, it's not Nisha's leg. Fadi claims he doesn't know the woman or can't remember her. But as the police continue their search, they find more photographs. Fadi and the mystery woman look happy and relaxed, intimate. Some of them have a time and date stamp. They go back months when Nisha was still alive. Eventually, reluctantly, he confesses to the shameful affair. He met his mistress, a Lithuanian sex worker called Laura Mokien, in a brothel. Unbeknown to his wife, Fadi often paid for sex. The two began a relationship, and Fadi stopped paying for sex, but continued to lavish his mistress with expensive gifts. Whilst Nisha was working hard to get them out of debt, Fadi blew 15,000 pounds on jewelry, expensive restaurants, and luxury weekends away. He took Laura on holiday around Europe and even to America following Nisha's death. Here is a man in huge debt and having an affair. With his wife out of the way, he could have all the money and be free to be with his mistress. But does it amount to murder? It's all pretty sordid, but it's not proof. At the end of the day, Fatty has a solid alibi. He's even on CCTV footage, relaxing, playing snooker with his friend at the exact time of the murder at the Collindale Snooker Club. Is it possible that Laura arranged to have Nisha killed so that she could have Fatty all to herself? Please speak to Laura, but she too has an alibi that holds up. And what about the mystery silver Audi? None of it adds up. Yet. Inspector Scola cannot shake the feeling that somehow Fatty is involved. To break the case, he needs to gamble. He decides to put the cat among the pigeons and inform the Patel family about Fatty's affair. It might trigger new insights and help him get to the bottom of this difficult case. Scola's plan works. 
Once the family know Fatty was unfaithful, they turn on him. Police soon hear stories of long, secretive phone conversations held out of earshot. They are told that Fatty received deliveries of new mobile phones just days after Nisha's murder and that he was seen cutting up old SIM cards. The family don't know what it all means, but they think it's suspicious. Scola agrees. Fatty even said to one of Nisha's cousins, the police have got my phone, I know some dodgy people. They're gonna think I'm a bad person. Well, he's not wrong there either. Detectives soon discover Fadi has links to Turkish and Kurdish gangsters. And that's not all. One contact in particular jumps out at them. A man known to many at the yard, North London drug kingpin and suspected murderer, Roger Leslie. The two men had met when Leslie brought his car to Fadi's valeting business. Leslie is a known drug dealer with a volcanic temper and previous convictions for violence, including assault, actual bodily harm, and possession of a knife and a firearm. At six foot four, he is an intimidating figure. He has a remarkable appearance, with at least 15 piercings in his eyebrows, nose, and all around his mouth. Leslie claims they are for loved ones who have died, but rumor has it, they actually represent each of the people he has killed. He is of African-Caribbean descent. Could this be the man that was seen acting suspiciously in Sudbury Avenue before Nisha was killed? And what's the nature of his relationship with Fadi Nasri? Police go back over Fadi's phone records, studying the calls made and received, and they soon discover a chain of communication that is gonna blow this whole investigation wide open. Police are curious as to why there has been so much communication between Fadi and Leslie, particularly in the run-up to Nisha's death. Detective Scola tries to figure out the connection between the two men. Is it possible there was some kind of feud between Fadi and Leslie? A falling out, a dodgy deal gone wrong? Had Leslie been threatening Fadi? He could explain why Fadi is reluctant to open up to the police. Two of the phone calls seem to be particularly relevant. One just before Fadi left to play snooker on the night of Nisha's death at 11.40 p.m. and one just after she was stabbed at 11.55 p.m. Leslie is implicated in other unsolved murders, a history of violence, possibly fitting an eyewitness description, and with calls to the victim's husband before and after the murder. He has just become the number one suspect. There's a growing sense of excitement in Scotland Yard. But when Leslie's phone records come back, it's bad news. Roger Leslie was nowhere near the crime scene at the time of Nish's death. Whatever else he is, he's not the killer. It's now December the 6th, seven months after Nisha's death, and police are struggling to move forward in their investigation. With the connection to Roger Leslie too big to ignore, Scola and other detectives expand the search. They dive into Leslie's phone records and show that on the night of Nisha's murder, there was a relay of calls. Aside from Fadi, Leslie made a number of calls to a man called Tony Emmanuel, a nightclub promoter from East Ham. Emmanuel is a low-level criminal with no known connections to the Wembley area. But mobile network location data shows that Tony Emmanuel 
was in Wembley at the time of the murder. Further investigation leads to a second breakthrough. Tony Emmanuel just happens to own a silver Audi A4. The car is seized and examined. Lo and behold, the rear left registration light is not working and it has a distinctive non-standard aerial. When police call Emmanuel in for questioning, like Leslie, he claims to know nothing about the murder. But Detective Scola isn't buying it. He's sure Emmanuel, Leslie, and Fadi Nazri are somehow connected. He calls Fadi in for a make-or-break meeting. He tells Fadi that they have two prime suspects in custody, Leslie and Emmanuel. Scola says... We know there is some connection between you and these men. He goes on to tell Fadi that he knows about the phone calls the night of Nisha's murder. There's an anxious pause. Scola thinks Fadi is about to admit to some sordid business deal, threats and intimidation. But then, surprisingly, Fadi breaks down and begins to cry. Police spend the next three hours with him as he cries inconsolably. He struggles and fails to compose himself. Despite the convincing display, Scola begins to suspect Fatty might be stalling for time. Fatty says, I'm sorry, I will talk to you. I just need some time to clear my head and get my head straight, but I will talk to you. But he gives them nothing more. DCI Scola, now certain there's more to uncover, lets Fatty go home and turns his attention to getting something from Tony Emmanuel. After two days of intense questioning, knowing that he's in the frame for murder, Emmanuel finally reveals all in a short, pre-prepared statement. He tells police how he was employed by a man called Jason Jones as a driver for what he thought was a drug deal. He admits they were both at Sudbury Avenue on the night of the murder, but claims he remained in the car the whole time while Jones went into the house. Jones was away for about 20 minutes and then came running back to the car and ordered him to drive away quickly. Emmanuel's statement also reveals how Jones told him there had been lots of banknotes lying on the sofa. This information was not released to the press and therefore could only be known to those who were in the house the night Nisha died. For Scola, this is the smoking gun. The final proof that it wasn't some altercation in the street gone wrong, but that someone had entered Nisha's home. That someone was Jason Jones. Emmanuel is charged with being an accomplice to murder. The next day, Jason Jones is found and arrested. Jones is a bouncer with a fearsome reputation and 75 convictions, many for violence. A big, stocky, African-Caribbean man, he fits the description the witnesses gave from the night of the murder. He is also a known acquaintance of Leslie. Jones refuses to give any comment on the accusations. But DCI Scola now is enough to connect all three men with Fadi Nasri, who he is now convinced 
arranged the murder of his own wife. The final pieces of the jigsaw are the phone calls between the men on the night in question. CCTV shows Emmanuel's silver Audi travelling down the London North Circular and stopping three miles from Nisha's home, where it waited for a number of hours, probably awaiting instructions. Records show that on the day of the murder, Faddy called Leslie six times and Leslie called him twice. Detectives now believe that at 20 past 11 p.m., Leslie called Faddy to ask him when he was leaving to make sure the coast was clear. Faddy then left the house with a friend to go to play snooker. What previously had been a solid alibi now looks deeply suspicious. Minutes later, Leslie called Jones, who was waiting in the car nearby, presumably in possession of a set of house keys provided by Fadi Nasri. Police contact the friend Fadi was out with, and he confirms that Fadi received two phone calls. The first call, the police now think, was Leslie telling Fadi that the deed had been done. Five minutes later, Fadi received another call from a neighbor to tell him that his wife had been stabbed. The call logs and times all add up. The final piece of damning evidence is that two weeks after the murder, Fadi took £18,000 from the bank in cash and called a phone box which Leslie used regularly in what police now believe was a call to arrange payment for the murder. DCI Scola is now convinced that Fadi is indeed behind the murder and his primary motive was money. On the 27th of February 2007, detectives arrest Fadi Nasri. In the interview, his hands are folded across his chest and he remains silent. Did you plan all along for Nisha to die? The interviewing officer asks. Fadi reaches out for his cup of water and takes a sip, but doesn't answer. You don't want to tell us what happened? Still no reply. Is there anything you can say to change our conclusion that you arranged with Roger Leslie to have your wife killed? Fadi again refuses to speak. Jason Jones also gives a no comment interview. But Detective Scola doesn't require a confession. He has enough to go to trial. On February the 28th, 2007, Fadi Nasri, Roger Leslie, Jason Jones and Tony Emmanuel are all charged with Nisha's murder. A year later, in February 2008, the trial finally takes place at the Old Bailey. The case is presented as a cold, premeditated affair. Fadi's web of lies, adultery, financial exploitation, deception, and his shady connections are laid out in court. There is tension in the air. The evidence is compelling, but it is also circumstantial. Scola just hopes it's enough to convince the jury. Nisha's family and friends have to wait an agonizing six days for the jury's deliberations to conclude. On the 28th of May, the jury returned to court. Tony Emmanuel is acquitted. The jury believes his story that he was only a driver and that he knew nothing about the murder. He walks out of court a free man. 
but for Fadi Nasri, Roger Leslie, and Jason Jones, the verdicts are guilty, guilty, and guilty. All three men are convicted of the murder of Nisha Patel Nasri. Leslie is given 18 years, Jones 20 years to life, Fadi a life term with a minimum of 20 years. The judge says Fadi left his wife defenseless in her home as he exercised the alibi he had constructed for himself. There was a significant degree of planning and premeditation, and it was a gross abuse of the trust he owed her as her husband. Outside court, Detective Scola speaks to the press. We are pleased with today's verdicts. These three dangerous and callous men will be in prison for a very long time. Fadi Nasri throughout this has shown himself to be a deceitful man, an arrogant and selfish man, and ultimately a very ruthless man who was prepared to kill, to gain financially, and be with his mistress. The ultimate betrayal. Katan, Nisha's brother, also reads a prepared statement. No sentence given to the murderers will ever replace Nisha, and this outcome will never compare with the suffering it's caused or the magnitude of our loss. The case of Nisha Patel-Nazri was as sad as it was sordid. A murder rooted in the age-old motives of greed and lust, but solved with modern technology of phone records and data tracking. But at its heart was the dogged determination of Scotland Yard detectives who would not let the murder of one of their own go unsolved. next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In 1854, young English aristocrat, 25-year-old Sir Roger Tichborne was lost at sea. His ship, La Bella, wrecked off the coast of Brazil with all hands lost. But his mother, Lady Tichborne, refuses to accept her loss. She chases every rumor and lead in the hope of finding survivors who may know what became of her son. Over the years, her hopes fade. Until 10 years later, in Australia of all places, a mysterious Englishman suffering from trauma-induced amnesia comes forward claiming to be her son, rightful heir to the Tichborne estate. The English-speaking world will become obsessed with the case of the Tichborne claimant, but it will take one of Scotland Yard's greatest minds to get to the bottom of it. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Boo. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory Macaulay.
Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death, pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.